title of our sermon is Hope for My Broken Family. Now, we didn't plan to preach on this text because there were baptisms. If you've been a part of our church, you know that we take books of the Bible and we study through those books and we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 14. In some ways, the simple answer to why chapter 14 is in the Bible is because there were questions about succession in the kingdom of Israel after Absalom killed Amnon, the heir to the throne of Israel. Amnon was a half-brother of Absalom, and he had committed awful sin of rape with his sister. Absalom, for two years, held that anger and then took his life. All the other sons scattered from Jerusalem, and it was obvious that there's an explanation of what comes next. So it's there for that reason. But I believe that there, the narrator also reminds us the deeper reason why this chapter is here, and also why we have hope that God will heal our families. If you look in verse 14, this is the woman of Tekoa, the wise woman she's called of Tekoa. She says this to David about why he should consider bringing Absalom back into the kingdom. She says, we all must die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. It's been three years, Absalom having fled Jerusalem for his life. He's gone to his father-in-law's, the king of Jeshur, to find safety. But likely, Joab feels that he's planning a plot to overthrow the king. But look what she says. God does not take life away. God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. It's a phrase that really unlocks the meaning of the whole Bible in every story that you read, Genesis to Revelation. It is God who has devised means to bring banished ones home again. Now, I will need to read the whole chapter. I looked at it several different ways, but it's a story that makes no sense without the four scenes in the whole chapter. It takes, it's going to take me six minutes to read the chapter, so I will ask you for six extra minutes uh, at the end. Let me make a few comments about hope for broken families. I think every believing parent prays, please God, heal my family. Some of us in our weariness in parenting might begin to see our prayer change to, oh God, will you heal my family? And then even in our difficulty and our doubts, we might say, God, will you heal? And we might wonder of his assurance. It is true that generational sin and wounds pass down from parents to children, just like physical characteristics and preferences and traits are passed down. But idolatry is also passed down generationally, and often a younger generation will see sometimes more readily than their parents the idols that were a part of the preceding generation. But without the gospel, we simply reject our parents' idols and embrace new idols, and we have a need for light. 
we have a need from the scriptures to point into our hearts, and that's what we'll be doing this morning. I just want to remind you that the therapeutic gospel is not the biblical gospel. The therapeutic gospel that you'll often hear could be summarized simply this way. All your problems in your life are found outside of you. If your parents were better parents, if the community was a better community, if there wasn't systemic problems that you faced, that's the reason why you have all your problems. And the therapeutic gospel says salvation is found inside you. When you heal your wounds, when you let go of your hate, when you find rest for your anxiety, then you will have salvation. That is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel says that all of our problems are found in us. And the problem is our own hearts. And that we go astray because we are sinners. Because we are sinners, we sin. And hope and salvation is found outside of you in Jesus Christ. What he has done for you, not what you could do for yourself. In today's modern culture, even in the church, we get the therapeutic gospel and the biblical gospel confused. And we are quick to develop the victim's mentality, blame shift, and to think that all my problems are somebody else's fault. This gospel is a salvation that comes to our hearts. Jeremiah said he gives us new hearts and he changes us from the inside out. And really, discipleship is a reparenting process. We do have to go back and look at those wounds because they affect relationships generation to generation. But we also have to look at those wounds through the hope of the gospel. And what we'll see in this text, we're going to need help outside of ourselves. Joab acts as an advocate, an intercessor. He acts as one who would reconcile this broken relationship between Absalom and David. And the stakes are high. It's a broken relationship that not is just affecting the family, it's affecting the community and the whole nation. And I would assume that Joab is nervous. It's been three years and Absalom likely is plotting a scheme to overthrow David. And Joab knows we've got to get him near, not only to keep an eye on him, but to find some hope in restoring this family. What you'll see in the text is that Joab acts as an intercessor. And he does this first by identifying and addressing the issue. We'll see that David has become at least passive if not avoidant and it's been three years and things are crumbling all around him Joab identifies and addresses the problem and then he does seek wisdom we'll see that it's manipulative of sorts and he asks this wise woman of Tekoa to mislead David in a story so that David might emotionally reconnect with the problems that he's facing but Joab is pursuing reconciliation he's seeking to address issues in broken relationships 
it tells us that we need a righteous advocate. We read that in 1 John. We all need a righteous advocate to come before the king and also to become a community of reconcilers. Read with me in 1 Samuel, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner, put on mourning garments, do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak these words thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab has a scheme, and his scheme is to tell a story that's so emotionally moving that David may move from his despondency, his passivity or anger or all of the above and act on a crucial situation for the kingdom. Verses 4 through 11, through 11 is the story that she tells about an estrangement where her son, as a widow, has killed his brother and that if his life is taken, she has no provision and he's asking for justice and protection. We pick up again in verse 12. The woman said, please let your servant speak a word to the Lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? She turns from the story that she's telling to ask David, how come you will not reconcile the problem between you and Absalom and how it's affecting the whole kingdom? Maybe Joab watched the story that Nathan had told when he spoke a parable, it moved David, and David confessed that he had sinned and that he was the man. Who knows? But it appears that the plot is now to move towards David, and she says this, must we all die? Well, let me back up. For in the giving of this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. She turns it on David and reveals the real reason that she's there. And then this verse that is one of the most amazing verses in all the Old Testament explains the whole trajectory of the narrative. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground. We cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take life take away life, he devises means so that banished ones will not remain as outcast. What comes next is David recognizes, she tries to persuade David, but what comes next is David recognized that this is Joab. If you'll notice in verse 18, the king said to the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. The woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, no one or one cannot turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your short servant Joab did this. This is the reason 
that he planned this dramatic ruse. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. Verse 22, Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. Now why does Joab fall to the ground? He knows that the king could execute him for deceiving him. He knows that he may not be able to restore the kingdom and if David's family is fractured, it won't be long until all the nation is fractured. But Joab says, today your servant knows I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted this request. So Joab arose, he went to Jeshur, brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Now listen what David says, once that Absalom is back in Jerusalem. Let him dwell apart in his own house, he is not to come in my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. David says he will not be publicly restored. David says that he has not cleared the slate, nor judicially have I cleared the slate. Now verses 25 through 27 is a puzzling insert in the chapter because it begins to talk about Absalom and his long beautiful hair and how Absalom would sell his hair for shekels of silver and it was so valued it was even viewed as somehow it had uh, mysterious medical power to wrap yourself in the king's kofur and to be healed or also to show favor to the king. It's making the parallel that Absalom was more like Saul than he was like David. He was about outward appearance. He was about power and control. And he had found favor with the people. The narrator's letting you know that there's still a crisis to come. Now, it had been three years that Absalom had been in exile. Now it's two years in Jerusalem, and still David refuses to bring Absalom into his uh, palace. So what does Absalom do? Verse 30, Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go, set it on fire. Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king, to ask, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would have been better for me to be there still. Now, therefore let me go into his, in his presence, the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, can you imagine the pompous pride? If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. Now this verse is a very, very sad verse. It's a sad moment for David. It's to me a sad moment to see the state of this relationship. Absalom came to the king 
bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. David agreed to continue to participate in the dramatic ruse, and we are just going to pretend like everything has been restored when the family and the nation is crumbling from the inside out. This, too, is the word of God. Thanks be to you, O God. Let's pray. Lord, teach us this morning, in the time we have, to reflect on this story. Every one of us is in a family that's experienced hurt and pain and estrangement and wounds. And Lord, some of those hurts are our fault and some of those are things that just happen. And some of those are because others refuse to take responsibility. I pray that you would heal our hearts as we hear your gospel truth. And thank you for the promise that you will restore us in Jesus Christ to our eternal home. If there's anyone here today that doesn't have that assurance, may today be the day of salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 is from a literary standpoint, somewhat ambiguous. The writer uses a Hebrew word to describe what's happening inside of David. It says that David longed for or desired to go to Absalom. Earlier in chapter 13, verse 37, it says that David longed for and mourned the situation. But the word in Hebrew could mean that he longed to be able to be in the presence of Absalom. He longed to restore this broken relationship. It also could mean that he desired revenge and vengeance on Absalom for taking his beloved heir Amnon from him and for destroying the family. I think the writer is ambiguous for a reason. Because quite often, when things happen to us and around us, we churn on the inside and we can't, cannot make sense out of what we are feeling. At times, we're angry, and if someone would allow us to write that person out of our life, we would want to do it. And other times, we're so broken and so hurt, we don't know what to do, and we become despondent and we become numb, and we become passive. That's David. For three years, Absalom is probably plotting to overthrow the kingdom, likely. David brings him back under this pressure that Joab gives him, and for two years, David continues to show to all the kingdom that Absalom has not taken responsibility for what he did. Now, that might have been correct in terms of he represented the judicial uh, voice of the kingdom. But think about all the advocates that are in David's life. Think about Samuel, how he came to David and he anointed him. And Samuel advocated for him and protected him from Saul. Think about Jonathan, who was an advocate, who not only put his own life and his reputation in Saul's family 
at risk, but he provided to keep David alive. Think of his mighty men who fought for him. Think of Abigail who advocated for David when he wanted to kill Nabal. Think about the prophet Gad. Think about Nathan. All of these advocates are around him. David, why didn't you call Nathan in those five years and say, I don't know what to do? Why didn't you call the prophet Gad and ask for his help? David is paralyzed. He's passive. I will say that that's not something that should surprise us. I find that when things have gone so awry and the hurts have been so deep, the thought of taking action feels as if all that it will do is make things worse. So we allow the estrangement. We don't initiate. That's the first step that an advocate will take. They'll bring up the issues and seek to address the issues. Well, was Joab being manipulative? Well, it, it's clear he was being manipulative. Joab was a very faithful servant to David. He was a cousin of David's. He was the military general, and he was doing what he knew had to happen in this vacuum of leadership. You could say that he was confronting David, but indirectly. He'd seen it work with Nathan, and he thought, maybe this will work. Well, was the wise woman of Tekoa, was she wise? I mentioned that she says something very profound. But that word is also ambiguous. It's the same word that's described of Jonadab in chapter 13, and we're told that he's shrewd and crafty. But our English translation gives her the uh, description of the wise woman, but it's the same Hebrew word, and I think that it's ambiguous for a reason as well because it's teaching us that only biblical wisdom is true from start to finish and human wisdom mixed with biblical wisdom has both benefit and it has damage and hurt the New Testament word for what happens for the Christian in these situations is that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin it's the word conviction of sin and a conviction of sin is not condemnation. It's calling to light what are the issues and the problems. John 16, 8 says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they did not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to the Father and in judgment because... The ruler of this world is judged. Conviction of sin has three main targets. One is to correct our relationship with God. Two, to correct the effects of these wrong relationships. And three, to protect us from evil and the schemes of the evil one. That's the purpose of conviction. And in an indirect way, that's the first step when it comes to the role of an intercessor. Let me illustrate this. I may have told you this before. If you're new to our church, you hadn't heard this, but when I was a young boy, our family took a trip to Texas for Thanksgiving. 
And the plan, because it was a 14-hour drive, is my dad wanted to drive straight through, and he wanted to leave late enough to where we were driving through the night so that the children could sleep. The plan was, uh, when we got to the outskirts of Mississippi, almost in Louisiana, we would pull off, my mother would begin to drive, and she would drive till daybreak to give my dad some time to sleep. Well, the plan went according to schedule. We got to Pascagoula or some uh, coastal town there on I-20, and we pulled off, and my parents swapped, and we took off again. And it was probably an hour, maybe two hours, when I was, we were all awakened by the gentle voice of my father. That gentle voice that said, Sweetie, sugar plum, I am aware that we may be going the wrong way. And we may need to stop and turn around. Now that's not exactly how it went. You might call it a rude awakening for a young boy in the back seat, but my dad had intervened because when he saw that we were about to cross the Alabama line and go back into Alabama, <laughs> he knew we got to stop this. Well, that's conviction of sin. God is intervening that you are on the wrong path and that to stay on this path will never get you to the goal where you want to be. So in that sense, this intervention brought some path that would lead towards healing. But was it wise? It's interesting in the book of First and Second Samuel, nine different times we're told David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord and talked to the prophet Gad. David inquired of the Lord and talked to Samuel. David inquired of the Lord in the cave of Adullam. David inquired of the Lord to keep from killing Saul and harming the Lord's anointed. But this text says nothing about David inquiring of the Lord. We will assume that David is not or Joab seeking wise counsel. And that's the way sin is. It's deceiving. Sin sounds like this will get me to the destination. But it also tempts us. The evil one has two main strategies, deception and temptation, and it's to lead us into a harmful path. Wise counselors that we should surround ourselves with intervene and turn us around. Well, what about this idea of seeking reconciliation? I know parents who've asked me, do I correct my children all the time? What about adult children who refuse to talk to me about things that have affected the unity of our family? Or I have adult children who talk to me and say, I, I don't want to talk to my parents because they just tell me that it was my fault and not their, theirs. I think that pursuing reconciliation is always right. What David does here is he just pretends that they are restored. But the real issues haven't been addressed. Wise counsel hasn't been brought in. And there's been no pursuit of forgiveness or reconciliation. Think about how different this was 
than when Nathan confronted David. David said, I have sinned. Nathan said, you are forgiven. There will be consequences. The story actually parallels, interestingly, the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. But what's so different in Luke 15, that story Jesus tells, is this son who is estranged because he has left the family finds himself not only out of money but out of blessing and he says I'm a servant in a far land I should at least return to my father and ask him to be a servant his my father will treat me better than these in the far country and we're told that he immediately says I have sinned I do not deserve to be your son and the father does the same thing that David does. He grabs him, he hugs him, he weeps with him, he kisses him, and he restores him. What is the difference between the two narratives? In one, you have restoration without forgiveness and reconciliation. And in the other, the order is forgiveness, asked for and granted, reconciliation, and then restoration. Well, what if you are willing to forgive, but someone is not willing to receive your forgiveness? Then this relationship cannot be reconciled. By forgiving that person, you release them from that hurt. And we're told and called to forgive. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is reconciled. And so until that person takes ownership or responsibility or you work through the hurt, then the relationship remains estranged. I thought about how the gospel is so powerful as a model for us because Jesus obeys perfectly where we failed, and then Jesus stands between the father and the sinful man or woman and he is banished on the cross he says why are you forsaken me the apostles creed we say he descended into hell we mean that jesus took on the penalty of our rebellion but justice was satisfied which frees him to in mercy offer us forgiveness and the life to come. I think the text reminds us, as we also read in 1 John and 2 Corinthians, we're called to be a community of reconcilers. We're called to live in fellowship with one another, to apply forgiveness. I'll tell you that your elders are not perfect, and we don't proactively lead in many situations. Often when we get involved, we're slow, we're clumsy, and we sin and we make mistakes as well. But I can tell you this, your elders love you and they seek and spend countless hours restoring broken relationships. We're not perfect, just like as parents, you may not be perfect, but I know you wanna restore broken relationships. The promise here to parents and to church members is that Jesus is the one who will ultimately restore us. 
He's devising means so that the estranged one might return home. That's the promise you have, parents. Jesus has a plan that will redeem and restore. And we, week by week, week by week, continue to worship together, to pray, to read scripture, to remind us that King Jesus is the one who will complete his promise. I've got a few application points and then I do want to close with a story. First, I would tell parents, you are intercessors for your children, but this means that you should both talk to your children about the estrangement that you feel at times, and you also should listen to your children. You should ask them, where have you felt estranged? Where have you felt misunderstood? This can be painful, but it's actually part of the healing process. I would also tell grandparents, you're a very important part of this process. While you should never undermine the authority of the parent, I want you to know, grandparents, you should be supportive. You should speak into the situation. You should wait till your son-in-law or daughter-in-law ask for your opinion, but you should encourage. And more than anything else, grandparents, you can be intercessors. You can pray for your children and for your grandchildren. We seek to be a church that's passing the faith to the next generation. Today, we demonstrated that as five generations of one family were represented here. And what are we saying? Our eyes are on God. Our hope is in God. Our trust is that God will devise means so that the banished ones may find their way home. I will tell you that over the past two months, I have seen more than ever that the most important work we can do is the work of intercession. And you'll hear next week that we are continually emphasizing that prayer is power and prayer parents is the most powerful weapon that you have to intercede for the lives and souls of your children. Elders, the most powerful responsibility that you have is to be a spiritual intercessor. I will tell you men that this seminar at 4.30 today, we'll be talking about this issue. We'll have plenty of pizza. It was so packed in the depot last week, we're gonna to have to move it to St. Andrew's Hall because men, we need to know that it's our job to participate in reconciliation. All too often, men, we're passive like David. We don't speak up. And we think the hard work and the heart work is something that either children or our spouse should do. So I implore you to join us today. Close with an experience that I had while I was in Jerusalem. You know that we were with a number of church members and the Phillips in Israel. And I knew that when I came to Jerusalem that I was going to be unsettled in my emotions, but I didn't know I didn't know what I was going to feel like. I was so anxious to know what that would feel like. We started in the south at the Sea of Galilee and looked, you know, learned uh, much about uh, the outer terrain, the early ministry of Jesus, Capernaum, uh, places like that. As you come into Jerusalem, if you're in a vehicle, you come in through a tunnel. 
And the anticipation just continued to grow and grow and grow. And then all of a sudden, it's like light was open and I saw that holy city. And I just started weeping. And I just couldn't stop weeping. And I just wept and I wept. And then I realized why I was weeping. I was weeping because I realized I'm home now. This is where all my longings are met. This is what I've always looked for. I'm home now. We spent about five days in Jerusalem, and I'll tell you, it was an amazing experience at the empty tomb and at the wailing wall. But I will tell you, it's not peaceful in Jerusalem, that city of peace, that city of shalom. While we were there, F-15 fighter Israeli jets flew over our hotel and the windows shook and they flew into Damascus and they bombed Syria. There were a bomb, there's a bombing on the West Bank where Palestinians bombed Israeli soldiers, or car bombed Israeli soldiers and they were killed. There were thousands of people protesting around our hotel all throughout the city and I wept again. This city that is the city of peace still lives in the brokenness, the ache, the longing for redemption. Does your family feel that way? Does your church feel that way? We have a longing, and yet in this space now, we don't see it. Take this promise from Jesus himself. God devises means. He has a plan for your children. He has a plan for your future. He has a plan to bring the banished ones to their eternal home. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that long before we looked for you, you had devised a plan to come for us. We thank you, Father, that you've saved us you put us in a family I know that there are people here with heavy hearts they are asking are you going to heal my family they are asking will you heal me I pray Lord that today we would find renewed hope in the gospel we'd be reminded that Jesus you've done everything to restore our relationship with God through your death and as we trust in you, we can be healed. Pray also that you would make us a community of intercessors for the next generation as well as for families, for those who feel estranged, for individuals as well. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn is Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners. It's found on page 498. We're going to sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 5. Please stand.